0: This morning we're going to continue our series on the, the book of Hebrews, this, this collection of, uh, of basically a short sermon. Often the book of Hebrews kind of reads like one of those instant analysis blogs uh, that follows a TV show, like Game of Thrones, supposedly, I've never watched that, or like The Bachelor this week, as soon as it was over. People were like pouring the internet, writing blogs about what had happened. Uh, we do this with the Black Panther. We've done that with Stranger Things. Uh, basically, if you're not familiar with these blogs, what happens is there are these Uber fans who pour over hours and hours of these TV shows or these movies, and then they're able to pick apart little tiny nuances like, well, whenever they cut to that scene of this guy walking through a wheat field, that actually is a flashback to... Season five, episode nine, when that same character was eating wheaties, and that proves that gluten is bad for the entire world. You know, uh, this is a, quite the statement. Is anyone familiar with these blogs? Yeah, some of you are. Uh, that's kind of what the Book of Hebrews is like. Uh, the the writer has gone through. All of the old testament. They've sort of scoured everything. And often what he's doing throughout this whole book is pointing back to these random encounters uh, that that people have with God or with just random characters and says, No, actually that whole there's there's a huge thing there. Uh, and today he's or she, my wife wants me to say, because that's legit, uh is the writer is saying. Uh, there's this one character in the Old Testament, he's mentioned twice. Like, his name comes up twice, yet the writer of Hebrews is going to mention him, like, six times, and he's dedicating what amounts to, really, four chapters of his 13-chapter book to this one character who uh, appears just randomly. And we'll probably think, as I read this in a few minutes, what is happening? Why does this matter? Uh, This seems pretty random. Uh, but then I think by the end, you might say, wow, this matters a great deal for every part of my life. So let's let's jump in, because uh, we have some ground to cover. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7, and, and I'll read first verses 1 through 7. And he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation, his name, king of righteousness, and then he's also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of days, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his uh, descent from them, receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. So who is Melchizedek, you're probably wondering. I hope you're wondering. Uh, I did find that this was a pretty great passage to line up with Daylight Savings Time, Uh, because everyone I've ever heard teach this passage has had to say over and over again, are you guys still following? Are you still following? Are you still interested? Uh, And so I just think it's pretty funny. But Melchizedek. Uh, is this guy, you have to look all the way back into Genesis chapter 14. Uh, Genesis chapter 14 uh, comes pretty early on in the whole redemptive story of God. It comes after the flood of Noah. It comes after uh, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and, and the Tower of Babel. And then in Genesis chapter 11, you have this guy, Abraham, who God comes and says, hey, through your family, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And, and God makes a covenant or a promising contract with Abraham saying, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your family really large. And through you, everybody, the whole world will experience what it means to be right and to be made whole and to be made at peace, both with, with God and humanity and humanity with one another. And so Abraham uh, is pretty excited about that. He moves, he travels, uh, he begins to settle in what's, pretty much modern-day Syria, Jordan, and Israel, Uh, and he sort of establishes quite the large estate. And he has a nephew, his name is Lot. Uh, Lot gets kidnapped, because around this time, there's a whole group of kings who decide to go up against another group of kings, and they begin kidnapping wealthy people. Uh, They begin kidnapping people of influence and the kings themselves. So you have this sort of tribal, mafia kind of war happening uh, between these different kings. When Abraham finds out that Lot has been kidnapped, his nephew, he gets his 318 really strong, uh, well-trained, well-armed servants. And he goes into this valley where the kings have taken all their, their captives. Uh, and he slaughters them. He wins crazy victory against these powerful people. Abraham essentially then becomes the most powerful people. Uh, I don't know if you've you know, watched The Godfather, but you know, at the end of every movie, he knocks off all the other heads of the families. No one's watched The Godfather? Okay, cool. Uh, that's basically what Abraham has done here to save his nephew, and he's all of a sudden quite the powerful man. And you're wondering, well, where is Melchizedek coming? So Abraham goes back home after you know, the slaughter. And two guys come out to him. One is the king of Sodom. And then the other is Melchizedek. And this is all we have in terms of narrative about Melchizedek. This is where we find him. It says, Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed, blessed Abram, saying... Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave a tenth of everything. And that's the story of Melchizedek. That's all of it. That's, that's the full summation of this guy, Melchizedek. Uh, there, there's not, there, he doesn't come back. Uh, he's just that random character that sort of appears out of nowhere. And uh, the writer of Hebrews makes these sort of astute observations about him and his analysis. He says, first there's his name. If you translate his name, it literally is uh, King of Righteousness. Malach, which is king, and Sedekeh, which we talked about when we we're doing the minor prophets, is... Righteousness or the ability to make things right, uh, another uh, way that we translate that often is justice uh, so he's, uh, he is this guy whose very name means he 's the king of making things right he 's the king that that has either within his abilities or within himself he has made uh, and can make people right that, that brokenness can be restored. Uh, in him, but at least that's what his name is supposed to point us towards thinking. The second thing he says is that his, his title, he's the king of Salem or the king of Shalom. These words are, are basically the same, not like Salem, Massachusetts, uh, but, but Jerusalem, actually. Uh, that's another word for Jerusalem. And what he's saying here is his name literally means, and his title means, that he's the king of making things right. He's also the king of peace. Uh, he's the king of Jerusalem, the place that, that all of the Jewish history points to God dwelling well with his people. That Jerusalem is this city uh, on a cliff that, that everyone around the world will see and know that God is who he said he was and that we can all dwell and live with God rightly, at peace, a flourishing society. And so the first few things that the book of uh, Hebrews says is that this Melchizedek has these titles. He has this name. But then the third thing, which is the strange thing, it's, it's the really weird piece. Because lots of people have names that, that mean significant things. Uh, mine doesn't. My name just means broad meadow. <laughs> uh, but his name means something powerful. But the weird part is that he's the priest of the Most High God. Meaning not only does he worship the same God as Abraham, not only does he uh, bow down and, and adore the same God that, that Abraham does, the God who created the universe, the God who uh, loves humanity, the God who created humans, the God who spoke to Abraham. So that, that, that he would have worshipped the same God as Abraham would be very strange because he's outside of his family. this point in all of human history, only Abraham and his family cares about the God of the Most High, or Yahweh. So there's that, but he's saying he's actually a priest of that God. He's a priest of God, the God of Abraham. That he had a role uh, that was only actually for people of God, yet he, ex- he had this role where he stood as a priest. Uh, Ryan did a really good job explaining that, but that, that a priest actually stands between humans who are all broken and messed up, And a holy God and a priest somehow is able to bridge that gap and both speak on behalf of God, but also to repair that relationship between humans that that stink and a God who is holy and completely other. And so that in itself, is a pretty bizarre effect. Is that not only is he this king of peace, this king of righteousness, but he's also this priest that stands between God and in this situation between Abraham and God. Abraham at this point had actually talked to God. Yet in this situation, there's a priest who stands between them and he blesses Abraham. What's also strange is that priests are a few hundred years from even happening for the people of Israel. Uh, And then when when the priests do appear, they're only for uh, a particular family, a particular tribe of the people of Israel. That's Aaron or Levi's. Uh, That's how we get the book Leviticus, which I know you guys pour over all the time. But he is a priest who stands between God and his people outside of the normal origins. He's not... Uh, by birth, someone who should be a priest, but that's it. Then the fourth thing he says is is even stranger. He says he is a king without a genealogy. There's no beginning to him. There's no end to him. Uh, in the in the Old Testament narrative style, each new character that appears. You guys still here? Sweet. Uh, each character that still appears is. Uh, is received by this long genealogy of like, well, he's, he comes from this guy who is married to this lady, and then they have grandparents, and then their grandparents are these people, and on and on it goes, till they root this character that just appeared as far back as they can. And that's how they introduce people. And, and in their names, trying to say something about this, this person that was just introduced in the story. And then when that character dies, similar thing happens. It says, yes, this character died, but these are all the children that he had, and they married so-and-so, and they had these people. But Melchizedek, as we just read, all that there is on Melchizedek, appears in the story without any introduction, without any genealogy, no family tree, and he dies, or we don't even see him dying, and there's no family tree. And I think what most people would do is read that and say, Oh, he must be insignificant character. But what uh, the writer of Hebrews is saying is, no, no, he, he basically endures in his priesthood, in his kingship forever. He's he's that kind of famous and important, that, that there's no beginning and there's no end to this role that Melchizedek comes about and and demonstrates. So that's all the strange things about Melchizedek. And by now, you've all connected the dots, right? Oh, this is what this means. This this must matter a whole lot. And it matters this way. And I, I believe that's what the writer is saying, is it matters because all of the people of Israel, their whole history, their whole story has been one long succession of little little vignettes, little moments, uh, but all linked together as a group of people that have tried and readily acknowledged that they are broken and that they need to be repaired. It's a, it's a long history of people saying, we are quite, even our rulers, even our priests, even our prophets, we are all not the way we were supposed to be. The, the deep within these people, and it comes up over and over again through their whole story, is we are, are unable to, to be holy even for a second. To be the image of God, we were created to reflect his mercy, his justice, his loving kindness, but we can't even for one second hold that together. And so the, the whole Old Testament is actually filled with just line after line of saying, yeah, we do not measure up to what we were called to. The other thing that the the whole story is about is how they tried as well to live out laws and to, to do sacrifices and to worship God rightly in such a way they thought that they could bless the entire world through them. That's their calling, in fact. That, that through this family, through Abraham and all of his descendants, they would be able to show every other people group in the entire world what God is actually like. That he is gracious, and merciful, and loving, and kind, and slow to anger. But they, we know through the story, don't even get past their own backyard before they mess that sort of stuff up. Uh, there's this promise from Genesis 11 that this people would somehow bless the entire world, that they would bring righteousness and peace, that that's what, that's what they would do is that they would be people who are made holy and that they would somehow be able to point other people to be holy as well. In fact, in the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, uh, there's a, a prelude to it, and it says that they're supposed to be a kingdom of priests. That the people of Israel are supposed to stand between all of humanity and God and bring about that sort of peace, human flourishing, flourishing between humanity and God, and they don't do any of it. The only other time that, uh, Melchizedek comes up is in Psalm 110. Uh, it's, it's a poem, it's a song about a king who's gonna come and, and truly begin to rule with justice and peace. That he will be a promised, uh, wonderful hero. It's actually a hero sort of song about a hero that's not even born yet. And in that, that song, the, the writer of it makes this strange aside and he says, oh, and he will be of the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. Those are the two references. And what the the psalmist is saying, and what the person in Hebrews is saying is, we we can't even use the stuff that we've tried before. Uh, We need someone to come who's the king of peace, and who's the king of righteousness, to fix what's broken inside of us. We need someone who can repair and make us whole, who can see inside of all of our sin and our lusts and our selfish desires and actually fix that so that we can talk and be with God and be who we were always intended to be. He's reminding the people here that all of their attempts to fix themselves or find other things to fix them won't work. Except for some particular type of person, uh, a, a unique role. And spoiler alert: uh, we need a Melchizedek, who is Jesus. the The following chapter from seven to eight basically go, continually puts up two things. Uh, there's the priests, and then there's Jesus. There's the covenant, and then there's Jesus and the way that he administers. The covenant. And so I, I just kind of want us to, to look at those two things and, so that we can compare and contrast for ourselves. Uh, and then we'll, then we'll kind of wrap up, I guess. Uh, if Maybe I won't wrap up. Who knows? But in chapter 7, verse 11, he says this. He says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, that's the, the people who are supposed to be priests, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to rise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? Here he's saying, remember what a priest is for, and why would we need a new priest if that thing worked? Right? Right? He's saying, why would we need a special priest? Why would the guy in Psalm 110 say, we need a king who's also the priest of the order of Melchizedek. Why would we need that if the priest that we had before us worked? Sort of rhetorical question of saying, it doesn't work. Priests, I know we do not hang out that much with priests. Uh, Even if you grew up in a Catholic tradition, what he's talking about is very different. Uh, I don't think that many of us are uh, you know, going into any temples anywhere and, and, and experiencing someone taking an animal and slaughtering it before us and then taking its blood and making a way for us to be with God. And so you might think, well, of course, like, I don't need a priest. Like I'm an American. We don't need priests. I'm good with God. I'm good with everybody because I'm me. It's my birthright. I'm an American. But this is what a priest is. A priest is someone who intercedes on your behalf to make you well, to restore your insides, to remove the brokenness, the insecurities, the wounds, the lies, the lusts, all the baggage...